How's everybody doing? Y'all nervous? I, I'm a little nervous, I'm not going to lie. Uh, this is the first time I've ever done a Sunday morning sermon, so I thank y'all for the opportunity to, to be here and do this, and we're going to get through this together, and we're going to be just fine at the end of it. That may be sooner rather than later, but we're all going to get there together. Uh, Miss Robin had asked me earlier in the week if I had a title for this lesson, and no, I really didn't have a title for the lesson. I immediately thought of one when she asked. I was like, no, I can't, I can't use that. Uh, my mom was a teacher, and one of her favorite uh, mottos during her teaching days was, suffering builds character. I was like, oh, I really don't want to put that on the heading of the, the bulletin. Nobody will show up, and then I'll just be here in a room by myself, and you know, that's not what anybody wants. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a saying, and it's got some weight to it. Um, but, you know, I really, I want to start off by, by saying, have you ever been talking to someone, and you're just, you're going through what you're saying, and they just stop you, say, nope, you're wrong. And, I mean, immediately, you just pull up short what? I'm not wrong. You're wrong. You immediately start forming arguments in your head as to why you're not wrong. Well, I have a wife, uh, and I love my wife. She's a wonderful woman, uh, and this happened with us. I'm going I'm to paint you the, the picture. We've been through, all of us, collectively, two hurricanes, a year's worth of covid um, I'm trained as a nurse, and I've been taking care of COVID patients for just under a year. And uh, we had a vacation that was planned, me and my youngest son. He and I were going to go on a vacation. We were going to go to San Antonio with his school. And COVID kind of killed that. We said, no, that's okay, son. We're going to figure it out. We're going to go on this ourselves. If the school won't take you, We'll do this as a family. We're going to go on vacation. We're going to go to San Antonio. We're going to go to Six Flags. We're going to ride all the rides. Yeah, well, then Six Flags said, yeah, this COVID thing, we're, we're going to shut down for a little while. So that trip got canceled a second time. We go through, and you get Hurricane Laura, you get Hurricane Delta, and things just kind of progress, and you go into the the fall and the winter months, and we get this, you know, third big surge of COVID patients, and, you know, that starts to kind of slack off a little bit, and so, finally, able to get a little bit of time off. Say, kids, we made y'all a promise, and we're going to follow through on it. We're going to San Antonio. We're going to go to Six Flags. Now, this was about mm, two weeks ago. Take off of work, drive up to San Antonio, we get there, and uh, say, well, we might be in for a little bit of weather. But we spend the night at the hotel, uh, what was that, Saturday morning, we wake up, look at the weather, it doesn't look good. And then Six Flags, Fiesta Texas puts out a message and says, we're closed. We're not going to run the rides. It's going to be super cold. 
Amy and I look at each other and we say, well, I guess we better go on home. So we pack everybody back up the very next morning and we head back home. Well, then you know what happens. We get the big old ice storm, more ice than you know, we've had in 20 years at least. And I can remember. And uh, kind of bummed me out. Well, what are you going to do? We're still off, you know. I still don't have to go to work, so I got some time off. That's not too bad. You know, we'll just have a staycation. And I heard, start hearing some noise up from the attic. Okay, well, let me go up in the attic and check on that, make sure nothing too bad's going on. And I figured, you know, it's probably something with the water heater. Water pressure's a little low. I get up there, and yeah, water heater's popping and making some noise because it's not getting enough water to replenish itself. Okay. And then I notice a drip, drip, drip. <sighs> All right. Go track it down. I find there's this little spot in the ceiling. Just a little drip, drip, drip. Slide a bucket under it. Okay, we'll catch it. We're, we're going to deal with it. I go back downstairs. And I decided at that point in time of the day to throw myself a little pity party. I just, it's been enough. I'm going to feel a little sorry for myself. Uh, I think I've earned it maybe a little bit. And I just kind of moping around the house. Well, when I mope, I tend to get short with the people around me that I love. It's a character failing. And I have been short with my wife. Well, I don't like leaving things like that. And she kind of doesn't like me being that way. And so we have a conversation as to why I'm being the way I'm being. Uh, and I try to explain to her. Why, why I feel this way. I say, look, you know, we've had all these things. You know, it's just piled up and it's piled up and it's piled up. And, and I'm sorry. You know, I know that God is not going to give me more than I can handle, but I'm at this point wondering how much I can handle. And she says, now stop. That's not biblical. I said, what? She said, nowhere does God say that he is not going to give us more than we can handle. Um, and, and like I said, my brain just froze because, you know, it's one thing to be called out and told that you're wrong. It's a whole other thing, really, to be called out and said that what you're saying is not biblical. And I knew I had a lesson coming up, so I was like, well, let me look into this. Um, but we've heard that expression, right? We've all heard that God is not going to give us more than we can handle. Is, is that a biblical thing? I'm, I'm going to go out and I'm going to say, no, it's really not. It's really not a biblical thing that God is not going to give us more than we can handle. Now, there's this little poem, and maybe you've heard it. It's everywhere. And I find that probably most of the places this poem exists is in people's bathrooms for some reason. I know for a fact that my memo had this poem hanging on a little wall scroll in her pink-tiled bathroom the whole time I was growing up. Footprints in the sand. We all know what I'm talking about? If you'll give me just half a second, I'm going to bring up my phone, and I'm going to read you this poem. One night I dreamed a dream. As I was walking along the beach with my Lord, across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand one belonging to me and one to my Lord. 
After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why, when I needed you the most, you would leave me. He whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you. Never ever during your trials and testings, when you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. And we've heard that, we've seen that, we've been inundated with that. But what's the scriptural reference for that? Does anybody know? Who came up with that? Who wrote that poem? If you go on Wikipedia and you try and research footprints in the sand, you'll find there are at least five people who claim credit for writing this poem. They've sued each other back and forth. They've argued about who takes credit for it. There are people that, if you use it and claim it online, they'll write you letters and tell you, no, that's mine. Nobody knows who this came from, and there is no scripture that is attributed to this. Now, the closest that I could find was in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 1, starting in verse 30. And if you look at that, of course, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, you're kind of getting a, a recap of the Hebrews leaving Egypt. And starting in verse 30, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. And that sounds good. God carrying us. And we like that thought. We like that's comforting. We like that image of God carrying us through. Did God carry the Israelites through? Yes, he did. He literally carried them across the Red Sea. He parted the water and carried them through. But if you keep reading, and just go a little bit further. <clears throat> but for all this, in verse 32, you did not trust the Lord your God, who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it, and to him and his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot, because he has followed the Lord fully. You know, just the idea that, that God carries us through these difficult times is just part of the picture. And if we just let that be the one thing in our minds as we go through life, when these bad times come, it's like walking through a room in the dark and somebody's come through and moved everything around. You're going to stub your toe on something. You're not going to understand why or what it is. So if you'll look 
at 1 Corinthians 10.13. I think this is another place where we get this idea that God's not going to give us more than we can handle, where we may be taking one thing and turning it into something else entirely. 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now, temptation and trials are not the same thing. Temptation does not come from God. We know that. We're tempted when our own earthly ways lead us astray. Okay? So temptation is not something that comes from God. God gives us an escape from each and every temptation that follows us because when we sin, that's our own fault. We're not looking for the way out. We're looking for the easy. And God doesn't want us to fall into sin. He gives us a way out. Okay? God, uh, temptation is not God's fault, and sin is our failing for not using the escape that is provided to endure temptation, okay? That may be a whole other lesson, but I think those two things kind of explain where we get this idea that God's not going to give us more than we can handle, trial-wise. Now, what do the scriptures actually say about suffering? Okay, if you look at Psalm 66, 10 through 12, For you have tried us, O God. Who's tried us? God has tried us. God doesn't tempt us. But who's trying us here? God has tried us. For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You have brought us into the net. You laid oppressive burdens upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. According to Psalms, Psalm 66, trials can come from God. Okay? Something is refined when impurities are released from a desired product and removed. We do a, an awful lot of refining in this area. Um, there's a lot of people in this room who know an awful lot about refining things and making a product, okay? How do you refine things in a plant kind of a situation? Pressure and heat. Pressure and heat and time. And that's how you get impurities out of a substance, change it into what it needs to be so that it is worth something to you. All right? Now, the Hebrew people who stood at the threshold of the promised land um, and were afraid to go in, they needed to undergo some purification. Forty years worth of purification. God told... Moses in that chapter in Deuteronomy, not a single one of you is going to get in. Only Caleb, only, only his kids. The whole generation that stood there at the threshold, y'all are going to wander in the desert for 
40 years. Who led them in the desert for 40 years? God led them in the desert for 40 years. And then after 40 years, when the process of refinement is over, we're going to have a second crack at this promised land. Psalm says that God tried them, he refined them, and then at the very end of that, he brought them to a place of abundance. God had a purpose in his refinement. It wasn't suffering for the sake of suffering. He was not just watching them suffer and wander for 40 years. He had a plan. He had a goal in mind. So uh, this image, God, in Psalm 66, he says, laying an oppressive burden on his chosen people, that's a whole different image than footprints in the sand. And it's an uncomfortable image. But, and this might be a whole other second lesson, but maybe sometimes we get the wrong idea of what God wants from us and for us. But the question is, does God want us to suffer? Well, in Psalms, he had a plan. Okay? Um, the scripture reading this morning was James 1, 2 through 4. And this scripture gets used a lot when you're talking about trials. So James 1, 2 through 4, I'm going to read this again. And Kendall, you're welcome. Uh, I gave you this one to read and not the one that's coming up next. So you can be glad for that. Uh, y'all, are y'all familiar with the concept of explaining a concept at five different levels of complexity? You start off, you explain something at the kindergarten level, and then you explain it at maybe a grade school level, a high school level, a college graduate level, and then a postdoc level. So that, you know, there are, there are different levels at which you can explain something. I think that we get that in the Bible a lot, too. This is kind of the, the middle school level, I think, of explanation. That's one of the reasons why I love James is because he brings things kind of in a very clear, direct way. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, it's a pretty short explanation, okay? It's two sentences, and so it's fairly easy to pick apart. Number one, when faith is tested, that produces endurance. Number two, faith is tested by various trials. Now, testing can mean either proved Testing can also mean exercise, kind of like when a child tests a parent's patience. You're really exercising that, that patient's muscle of that parent. Um, but I think in this case, we're talking about trials are exercising faith because the testing is not revealing something. It is producing something. In this case, it is producing endurance. And then endurance has its result. Endurance makes us perfect and complete. Okay? So what we take from James is that suffering through trials exercises our faith, which allows our faith to endure, 
which makes us perfect and complete. So if trials come from God, then maybe the image we might have here is of God as a trainer who is helping our faith to get continually stronger. Okay? So if that's kind of the, the grade school, middle school discussion of this, a more complex version would be 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Now, Peter likes his grammar. There's a lot of commas and phrases in here, things inserted in the middle of other sentences that you kind of have to parse through. But it reads thusly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So, there's a lot in that verse. In that little section of scripture, that is just dense meat that, I mean, it's packed full of nutrition. So some of the words that stand out to me in that verse, imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. And when I hear those things, I like that. That sounds great. Those things are things to look forward to. Okay? So how do we get from the trials, the various distressing trials, to the other words that stand out? Joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Well, number one, in this verse, through God's great mercy, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. This all comes from the resurrection of Jesus. We are born to a living hope. Number two, we are born again to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. It is the inheritance that are those three words that stands out. Imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. What we are born for is permanent. Okay? What is that inheritance? It is our salvation, reserved in heaven for us and ready to be revealed in the last time. Those of us who receive that salvation, 
who receive that inheritance are protected by the power of God through faith so that we can receive that protection. So that we can receive that salvation. Excuse me. We're protected so that we can receive that salvation by the power of God. We rejoice in our inheritance, which we said was our salvation, even though we are being distressed by trials. We are distressed by various trials so that our faith will be proved. Now, in the last set of scripture, we talked about faith being, what did we say? We said that faith was being tested. Okay? And we said that that was exercise. Here we're talking about faith being proved, the proof of our faith. Okay? Here we've got more of a courtroom kind of an image. We're talking about the end times, the revelation of Jesus when we receive our salvation. Now, we had a lesson probably I think about a month ago, a fantastic lesson, and it was about those books being opened up at the last day. And that's where our faith is going to be proven. That's that courtroom scene. That's where, you know, all, everything that we've done, everything that we've said, everything that we've thought comes to light. And if we're covered by the blood of Jesus, or if we're not, is going to determine what is said about us in those end days. Okay? The proof of our faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when you're sitting in that courtroom at the last day, I don't want to have to be nervous about what's going to be said. What I want is when my faith is laid out there on the table, and that's the proof. I want to hear praise and glory honor. Now, if we love Jesus and believe in him even though we do not see him, then the outcome of that faith is the salvation of our souls. Because of that salvation, because of that salvation, we greatly rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. So, how do the trials work for our benefit, to sum kind of that whole thing up, because I kind of broke that down into sections, but to sum that up, without trials, there's no evidence, there's no proof of faith. If there's no faith, there's no salvation. Trials are hard. Peter calls them distressing. The psalmist called them an oppressive burden. Through fire and water, people riding over our heads. Okay? But we know that this suffering is temporary. In Psalms, at the end of all that, they were led to a land of abundance. Peter says it only lasts for a little while. God knows what eternity is. We have no concept of eternity. We can't figure it out. 
It's not something that we're programmed to understand. But God lives in eternity, and he sees that. Okay? He provides for us here a spiritual training. And that spiritual training produces an enduring faith that leads to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and waiting for us in heaven, protected by God. Now, earlier, I made mention of a question, does God want us to suffer? Well, no, I don't think that God wants us to suffer. But God lives in eternity. He knows what eternity is. God does not want us to suffer for eternity. God wants us to be with him and to have a relationship with him. So the question is, how do we get to that point? Well, God provides us a way. These trials, these things that we have to endure, are the way in which we prove our faith and thereby secure our salvation. Now, back to the very beginning. When I said... God's not going to give me more than I can bear. My wife said, no, you're wrong. I think God does give us more than we can bear, and I think that's biblical. Well, of course God gives us more than we can bear. He has to. Otherwise, there would be what? Not an abundance of faith. If God never gave us more than we could bear, there would be an abundance of self-sufficiency because we can handle it all on our own. There would be an abounding of pride because I got this. There would be an absolute glut of complacency and not having to grow. And precisely, at the end of it all, zero faith. So, God takes us past the point of our own limitations, and when we are faithful to him, we are allowed to see a portion of the grace and power of his grace and his power, and we are encouraged to continue in our faith more and more until the day that we receive that promised salvation. When Jesus comes again, and we're able to see our faith proven true, then there will be rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Consider it all joy indeed, my brethren. So, when we look back at this idea that God's not going to give us more than we can handle, well, that's just not true. That's not right. God gives us more than we can handle because he loves us. And even though it's more than we can handle, it's certainly not more than he can handle. And it's certainly not more than our faith can handle. Because God loves us, and he exercises that faith. And that way, we stay in a relationship with him. Now, that poem, Footprints in the Sand, I don't know, Think of that what you want. Um, it's a nice image. God carrying us through the difficult times. 
If anything, it's our faith in God that carries us through those difficult times. Because that's what's being exercised. That is what is proving and securing for us that salvation. So, are you ready to make the commitment to a life of faith proven by various trials that produces endurance? Are you willing to let yourself be broken here and now and continue to believe and love Jesus through the various trials so that you can receive the salvation that cannot be taken away and that will last forever? The beginning of that road is your confession that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God who died for you, who defeated death for you, that he rose from the grave and he's now in heaven getting a place ready for the faithful. You can join him in that death, that burial and that resurrection as he commanded by allowing yourself to be baptized. Your sins will be washed away and you'll rise in new creation and heir to an inheritance which is what? imperishable, undefiled, and which will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in that last time. If you have a need, if this is what you want, please come as we stand and as we sing.